Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 to get us going today in our passage as we continue in the book of Mark. And as you're turning there, a little story to get us started. A young man had just gotten his driving permit. He asked his father, who is a preacher, if they could discuss the use of the car. His father took him to his study and said to him, I'll make a deal with you, son. You bring up your grades, study your Bible a little, and get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. After about a month, the young man came back and again asked his father if they could discuss the use of the family car. They again went to the father's study where his father said, Son, I'm real proud of you. You brought your grades up. You studied your Bible diligently, but you didn't get your hair cut. The young man waited a minute and replied, You know, Dad, I've been thinking about it. You know, Samson had long hair, and Moses had long hair, and even Jesus had long hair. The father looked at him and replied, Yes, and they walked everywhere they went. Today, we'll see Jesus and the disciples doing a little bit of walking as we go to a couple of places in Scripture. And in honor of the reading of God's Word, stand with me, please, as we read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word and as we go through it today, we ask that you would give us wisdom, uh, both for me to speak it and for ears to hear it. Lord, uh, bless us by your Holy Spirit this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. The passage today marks a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Already, Jesus' reputation as a healer had spread throughout the region as a result of the many miracles that he had performed. And here in Mark chapter 8, we see another one of those miracles, uh, but one that's performed in a rather unusual fashion. 
This also marks the beginning of a turn in the book of Mark from Jesus' earthly ministry, that is, his ministry here on earth, toward his march to Jerusalem and ultimately to his death and resurrection. This turn in in the book of Mark, it's analogous to when you're on a long flight and you hear that little ding sound and the attendants announce that we're about to begin our descent to our destination airport. Jesus was about to begin the descent toward fulfilling his ultimate mission here on earth, the purpose that he came to earth, that is, the first time. Disciples, however, did not yet fully understand, or perhaps another way to say that is they did not yet fully see. Which brings us then to the first part of this passage, which is the miracle. We want to look at the miracle, and as we start this passage in verse 22, we see Jesus tells us his disciple, or it tells us Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, which is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. And Jesus' reputation as a man that could heal was already known. The passage tells us that some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch their friend. Just pause there a moment. Would that we were so concerned about people, people that we know, that we would bring them to Jesus, and that we would beg Jesus to touch them. Would that we were that concerned about people. Would that we would plead with God in prayer earnestly to ask him to touch those around us, that they might have a touch of the master's hand, that he might take away their spiritual blindness. Do we pray earnestly for those that we know? I'm guilty of not praying enough, and I'm sure you also feel that same way. But God God wants us to. He wants us to pray for those who need to see, who do not yet see. Look at Jesus' response and compassion for this man. It says he takes the man by by the hand. Right? Of course he has to because the man is, is blind. But think about this man's testimony afterwards. The Son of God himself takes him by the hand and leads him out of the village to perform this miracle. Makes us think of a hymn, right? He leadeth me, he leadeth me. By his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. The Son of God, the Savior, leading this man gently out of the village to perform this miracle on him. Now let's look at how Jesus chose to heal this man. He spits on his eyes and lays his hands on him. Going back to chapter 7 of Mark, you may remember, this is not the first time that Jesus Jesus has healed a man by spitting on him. He makes a deaf man hear and be able to speak by spitting on him. But for this healing, this is where the, the healing miracle takes a slightly different turn from what we might expect and from every other miracle that's been performed. Jesus says, do you see anything? Like a physician attending to a patient and assessing how successful his operation was, he asks the man for status. Interestingly, R.C. Sproul notes, this is the only instance in the gospel when Jesus, having touched someone for healing, asked how he or she was doing. In verse 24, then the man looks up, and now suddenly... His optical nerves are firing and and sending signals to his brain. 
But his brain, perhaps not quite ready for these impulses, uh, and so the man says, I see people. They look like trees walking. Jesus, perhaps somewhat surprising to us, appears satisfied with what he hears and now performs the second part of the operation. And he places his hands on the man's eyes again. And this time, the man looks out intently, and now he can see everything clearly. The man who had been blind before now appears to have 20-20 vision. Jesus, perhaps wanting to avoid a mob scene, sends the man home and tells him not to return to the village. So why this two-phase healing? Did Jesus suddenly lack healing power? We don't think so. But did the man not have enough faith to accomplish this healing in one stroke? Several levels of interpretation may apply here. The first one is that, that commentators say perhaps the man was indeed lacking faith. Why do we say this? Commentators contrast this to the man's introduction to Jesus where he's led by his friends to him. He does not appear to seek him out. He appears to be led to them by his friends. So perhaps he didn't quite have the faith that some others had who were healed in Scripture. Think of the woman uh, in Mark chapter 5, the woman who had had bleeding for many years. And she touches the hem of his garment and is healed. Verses 32 through 34 tell us in that passage, but he that is Jesus, was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, that is, that she had touched the hem of his garment. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Of course, the blind man wouldn't have been able to walk to Jesus and, and touch his garments as this woman did. But some also point to the healing of blind Bartimaeus, which comes up in chapter 10, who, upon hearing Jesus was near, cried out loudly, Have mercy on me, son of David. Again, Jesus heals him and tells him, Go, your faith has saved you. So some think, perhaps because of the lack of faith of this man, that it took two tries to heal him. However, there's probably another interpretation in this one, of course is spiritual. Perhaps this two-faced healing means Jesus was teaching a spiritual lesson to the disciples on spiritual blindness. In fact, if you remember from last week's message, when Jesus asked the disciples, he says, do you have eyes and not see? Almost prophetic, we might say, in light of the miracle that Jesus knew he was about to perform. And so our understanding of who Jesus truly is may take more than one touch from the Master. I say this because of what comes next in the passage. So let's read on. Let's go on to the next part, to the question, this all-important question. After this, we are told, Jesus goes with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, roughly a 20, minute, uh, 20 miles to the north of Bethsaida, quite a walk. And Jesus, as rabbis would do, began to teach them as they walked. And he begins with a simple question. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, the disciples have their ear to the ground. We may think of the disciples as simple folk, but they were savvy. 
They had heard what people were saying. And so they answered Jesus as to what they had heard. John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist was a recent appearance, so we can see why he might be on people's minds. And one of the prophets is a generic enough answer, but specifically, why Elijah? Why not Moses or Isaiah or, let's say, Ezekiel? Elijah, in fact, was based on the Jewish expectation that the prophet Elijah would return prior to the Messiah's coming. And that's based on Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of the Old Testament. That passage says, Behold, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Note that these are, in fact, the last verses of the Old Testament. So it would be natural for people to have this prophecy in mind that Elijah was to come before the Messiah. Now, before we get to Peter's answer, it's interesting to note that people were not yet saying, at least not according to Mark, that Jesus was the Messiah. This was despite the fact that there were demons who were proclaiming him to be the Son of God. Mark chapter 3, verse 11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In Mark 5, 7, the spirits say, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Isn't it interesting that those who had spiritual insight could clearly see who Jesus was? Jesus then turns to the disciples to ask, after asking who the people thought he was. And he asks them a question. He says, who do you say that I am? The you here is emphatic. The expositor's Bible commentary says it this way. In other words, Jesus is asking, who do you, my most intimate and trusted friends, In contrast to the other people who neither know me nor understand me, think that I am. It's almost as if Jesus is asking, just as he asked the blind man, what do you see? And here we come to the confession, the last part of this passage Peter answers, Peter being a spokesman for the disciples, often being the first one to answer, and he answers without hesitation. He says, you are the Messiah. The Bible commentary says the Greek word Christos, or Christ, translates the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah, and means the anointed one of God. In the Old Testament, the word is used of anyone who is anointed, As, for example, the priests and kings of Israel were. In Exodus 29, Moses anoints Aaron and his sons. In 1 Samuel 10, Samuel anoints Saul as king. Or in 2 Samuel 1, David refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. The word carries with it the idea of chosenness by God, consecration to his service, and endowment with his power 
to accomplish the task assigned. What an astonishing confession. R.C. Sproul says, The church stands strong and unconquerable as long as it remains committed to its confession that Jesus is the Christ. That confession is the very foundation of the church. A loss of confidence as to the identity of who Jesus does not who Jesus does not disrupt merely the external trappings of the church, it disrupts the church's foundation. We who confess the name of Christ must remain firm in our conviction that he is God in the flesh. Perhaps most interesting about this passage is Jesus' injunction not to tell anyone. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. You see, his time to be revealed had not yet come. Remember what we said at the beginning of this message. We're at a turning point in Mark's gospel where Jesus was about to turn to fulfill his mission for the redemption of the world. But the time to reveal that had not yet come. Even the disciples, as we will see next week, I think, were not quite ready for the ultimate mission that Jesus had come to fulfill. In fact, it appears the disciples would need even further seeing corrections as Jesus begins to tell them of his death and resurrection. Their vision, while getting better, was not yet 2020, and they too were still seeing men walking like trees. Perhaps, probably likely, none of us yet have that perfect 2020 vision of who Jesus is. And I would say we won't until that day when we see him in glory. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon stated it this way, probably the spiritual sight will never be an absolute perfectness bestowed upon us till we enter the light for which the spiritual state is intended, namely the glory of that place where there will be no need of candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. Peter, John, and James got a glimpse of that, as we'll see in chapter 9 in the account of the transfiguration. And the disciple John, he was present. He saw the transfiguration where Jesus was glorified. But even he, upon seeing the sight, stumbled to, to understand who his teacher was in the book of Revelation, where Jesus sees where John sees Jesus. So I want to take you there. Turn, or, uh, turn with me or you'll see it uh, uh, displayed in Revelation chapter 5. And I want to take you to the throne room of heaven. And here we have a magnificent scene. And John is witnessing it. This same John who saw Jesus performing these miracles, who saw Jesus transfigured, He's the same John who, upon seeing Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation, fell at his feet like a dead man when he didn't recognize his teacher. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven 
or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. John continues, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. When the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That is, who in the entire creation, the entire history of creation, has the power and authority to move history along to its redemptive end? And John, John who had seen all these, John the disciple who had seen all these miracles, he falters and he weeps because he can't think of anyone who might be able to accomplish this. Isn't that ironic that he who was closest to Jesus didn't even have the vision to see who Jesus truly was? Is he worthy? Yes, of course. And perhaps like the Apostle John, not until we see him in that moment one day will we truly know And will our eyes be fully open to see Jesus as he truly is? Application. We have to have application for this passage. It takes us back to our interpretation of the two-part healing and how this may apply to us. For those that are saved, our vision of who Jesus really is may yet get some adjustments. Be ready for that. Many of us here have accepted Christ as Savior, and we will stand among the redeemed in heaven, just as John saw this wonderful scene in the book of Revelation. But to you, I say, do not forget that while our eyes have been opened, we still see yet as in a mirror dimly. There may still be more revelation of who Jesus is that we can't fully fathom on this side of eternity. Now, for those who have not yet come to see Jesus as the Messiah, as Peter confessed, coming to salvation may take more than one touch from the Master. Perhaps stated another way, God may choose to reveal himself multiple times in a person's life before salvation comes. The ground may be rockier in some than in others. The weeds and thistles may be more overgrown for some than in others. Nevertheless, when salvation comes from God, it is a sure and complete thing. And whether God chooses to do it in one simple touch or in multiple touches, remember, he is sovereign over the affairs of men. J.C. Ryle said it this way, The Lord is not tied to the use of any one means in the conversion of men's souls. There are diversity of operations, but it is the same spirit who converts. If you have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the question that Jesus asked of his disciples is the same question that is asked of every one of us. Who do you say Jesus is? The answer to that question is the one on which our eternal future rests. Just as there were back then, there are multiple answers to that question today. Some say Jesus was a good man, performing many acts of healing. 
Some say he was a good teacher, instructing us to live good lives. Some say he was a great prophet, and he was, who came to proclaim the word of God. And then there are some who, like Peter, say that he is the Messiah. What do you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? Healer? Teacher? Prophet? Or the Messiah? Apparently, I'm not the only one asking this question today. We went into Giant Grocery Store uh, a couple days ago uh, to pick up some groceries. And there among the magazines, in the magazine rack, sometimes I look at that just to see what's in the news, there was a Life magazine with a depiction of Jesus on the cover. And across the top, right under the title, it said, Jesus in big letters. And then the subtitle said, Who do you say that I am? I was somewhat astonished to see this, knowing I'd be preaching on this today. And I thought, here I am, preaching at you for 20 to 30 minutes, just to say what you could have gotten in a quick walk through giant grocery store. (laughs) Pay attention when you're out. People are still asking the question, Who do you say that Jesus is? Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you have never done so, as we get ready to sing this last song, I urge you to accept him. Come forward if you'd like. Pastor Allen is going to be up here. He will hear your testimony. I will be up here. Though I will confess before you that uh, Luke came home and he had a bit of a cold. And I'm feeling fine, but I don't want to make anyone sick coming to me. That's why we're going to put Pastor Allen up here. Plus, he's much nicer than I am. So, um, And I will be in the back afterwards. Uh, You do not need to come greet me afterwards. If you are, you know, concerned about getting a cold, I completely get it. Uh, I don't have any symptoms. I'm fine. But... Think about this. More important than that is the eternal destiny of your souls. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you have never, never declared him, even in your heart where you're sitting right now, do it today. David Hahn shared with us a prayer request for a family of a man who just died yesterday. And we know someone else, a family member, who just died Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Life is short, right? You may think you have many opportunities to accept Christ as Savior. You may not have as much time as you think you have. The enemy wants you to think you have a lot of time. Time is short. I urge you to come forward. You must answer for yourself. Is he worthy to be Savior, to be your Savior? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Pray with me. Lord, we, we confess before you. We confess that we don't know you, Lord, the way that we know we will one day know you. And yet you have revealed enough to us to know that we can confidently say, you are the Messiah. You are the one, the Holy One of God, who was sent to take away the sins of the world. And you were sent 
because the Father sent you and because you made it your glory and your pleasure to save us from our sins, something that we could not do ourselves as much as we think that we lead good lives and that we do things right. Father, there's nothing, nothing we can do um, to earn your favor other than to accept the sacrifice of your son. And so I pray for anyone out here this morning that, that they may come to accept you as Lord and Savior if they have not yet done so. And Father, for those of us who have accepted you, we praise you and thank you for uh, the gift of Jesus uh, as we look to him, the hope of the world, And Lord, we proclaim 